Good evening. Our speaker next Monday, the 22nd of April, is David Blewett, who is professor of English at McMaster University in Canada. He gave the talk that he is to give here next Monday in this building a couple of years ago. It's entitled The Vile Abuse of Pictured Page, The Triumph of Robinson Crusoe's Illustrated Book. The title is myself looking for interesting poster copy as usual, but the lecture is terrific and I recommend it very strongly. It's a double slide lecture and almost one is convinced even. <laughs> our speaker our speaker this evening needs no such introduction. His name is George Sellos, who is assistant director in archives for the center at the Center for History of Chemistry in Philadelphia. He speaks to us tonight on Digging in the Dumpster and Other Cautionary Tales of Modern Manuscript Collecting. It's a great pleasure to have him here. Thank you, Terry. I appreciate very much the invitation tonight. The uh, weather was the same in Philadelphia as it is here. Um, so. I did, uh, just before leaving University of Pennsylvania, I did get my first introduction to what was happening here on campus with the demonstration because the Daily Pennsylvanian has a very long feature article on the uh, demonstration here, um, which was actually the first that I'd realized how long it was going on, but it uh, primed me to recognize what was happening under the uh, green awning out there. Um, I've worked for a number of years in uh, essentially archival field work and outreach work, several institutions. I began as a 20th century American historian teaching history and moved into archival work in the mid-70s. The position that I currently, currently have at the Center for History of Chemistry essentially places me as an archivist without an archives because we do not actively collect archival material since we lack the space in order to store it. But we are in the, in some ways, enviable position of having none of the responsibility of storing it, but all of the fun of going out and tracking it down and encouraging people to um, uh, chemists, chemical engineers, and other assorted related types to save it somewhere so that we do not get involved in what is the sometimes cutthroat and unpleasant uh, business of competing specifically with other institutions for papers. Well, what I'm going to talk about tonight really relates to a specific kind of modern manuscript collecting, and that is the non, I suppose you could call the non-market collecting. Um, the institutions with which I've been associated have not been actively collecting manuscripts which are bought and sold in the marketplace. Uh, literary manuscripts, um, certain kinds of political manuscripts. They're essentially manuscripts uh, which have a historical value but not a market value. Uh, a friend of mine who unfortunately can't be here tonight was told me she was going to say from the back if she was here, it'd mean they're worthless. Uh, which is exactly, I guess, what I would expect from someone with a literary background rather than a historical background. But uh, what I'm speaking of here really is 
manuscripts and archival materials which are absolutely essential for the for community history, for social history, for economic history, uh, all of these areas which have come to the fore, especially within the past 20, 25 years uh, in the American, uh, in American historical scholarship, uh, but which are essentially the archives of organizations, of individuals, um, which are not necessarily, in many cases, are not uh, of such a prominence that private collectors would be uh, bidding against one another for them. Which means that the whole character of much of the collecting effort is somewhat different um, than it is for those who are, uh, uh, much of whose activity is in the marketplace. Now, starting out as a field representative a number of years ago, I saw this, so to speak, from the uh, trenches or the, the ground level. And there were times at which we'll have to admit that I had some trouble seeing the, what the director of the archives would term the big picture, especially when I would be faced with the situation which the title of the talk refers to, which was unfortunately one of my initiations into field work. I got a call, I was at the Labor History Archives at Wayne State University. We got a call very late one day from a secretary at a regional office of the United Auto Workers, which is major, one of the major national unions, of course, and which was one of the uh, depository unions for the archives and which actually financed a, a very magnificent archival building at Wayne State. Uh, got a call from one of the regional uh, office secretaries saying the staff decided they were going to clean out the records and uh, if you want to save some of them you better get over here in a hurry. So she said everybody's gone home now but come back in the morning. So early the next morning, my assistant and I raced over to this regional headquarters only to find that the staff had beaten us to it. We went down in the basement and they were working like mad, dumping things out of file cabinets, throwing them into uh, cardboard boxes, and taking them out and throwing them in the dumpster. And we, of course, you know, leaped in after this stuff to rescue it. Unfortunately, they had gotten there far enough ahead of us that much of it, uh, much of it was lost. We did manage to save, I think, about 25 or 30 percent of it, and tried to restrain these uh, fellows. But since they were about twice our size, it wasn't. Uh, they had gotten up a full head of steam by that time to uh, clean all of this uh, waste paper out. Uh, what to them was waste paper, and uh, this kind of a breakdown, breakdowns in communications like this don't usually result in the conjunction of the archivist going into the dumpster. Uh, most of the time what happens is the timing is either that you get there beforehand, you're successful enough that you get there beforehand, or it happens, you know, you realize that it's happened long ago and uh, you, you missed your chance by some substantial period of time. It's always discouraging, for example, to uh, run across a memo as one of our processing archivists did a few years ago from 1973. Uh, this is the Washington office of a major international union that we worked with. Memo reads uh, April 4th, 1973, to all employees of the Washington office from the office director. 
It is imperative that every Washington office employee devote every possible moment of his or her time on Friday, April 6, 1973, to the job of getting rid of all outdated material and general junk, which we, which we do not want to cart with us to our new quarters on 15th Street. I cannot emphasize the importance of this task, and I cannot state too urgently that you must subordinate all other activities to this crucial task. Um, this, mind you, is a good 10 years after the archives had been officially designated the depository for this union, and after some rather strenuous efforts to um, make our presence known to the uh, various officials. Now, in the process of collecting this type of manuscript, There are really two levels of activity that one faces. One is the personal level of the uh, field representatives, the archives, if you will, outreach, since it often involves indirectly a lot of educational work, and um, a tremendous amount of diplomacy. In fact, if I can sum up this kind of uh, activity on both a personal and an institutional level, it involves a great deal of diplomacy. The life of a field representative or field uh, archivist is much like the life of a traveling salesman, except that instead of trying to unload your stock on the customer, you're trying to do the reverse. You're trying to convince your contacts to give you what they have in their possession. Normally, you're trying to get manuscripts, files, um, whatever kinds of records they have in their hands uh, into your archives. Uh, you always face the problem of the reluctant donor. And I might add that dealing with the kinds of records that uh, I'm describing, the types of uh, collecting efforts that I'm describing, it's not normally a concern. The concern of the donor is not normally that they want money for them although occasionally a uh, well-meaning relative will instill it in, in the head of the person that these papers that they have must be worth something. And occasionally you also find the representative of a rival archives who, if frustrated in their effort to get the papers, will tell the donor that, well, you really should make sure if you're going to give them to such and such institution to get something for them. Uh, there are a few institutions around that <coughs> operate on the principle, if they can't get the papers, nobody will. Um, it's one of the, the discour sometimes discouraging aspects of the uh, competition in the profession. Um, the type of reluctance that you run into, that the field representative has to work around, is more often a personal emotional attachment to the papers. Now, this is perfectly you know, obvious and understandable when they involve family papers. Um, the widow who's reluctant to give up the papers of her husband because she believes that the man never you know, had adequate recognition and she's going to write a biography of him. Biography 99 times out of 100, nothing, even a pamphlet gets written, but the papers may get thrown out uh, if she passes away. Uh, interestingly, though, you find this kind of emotional attachment to the records even in organizational uh, situations. Uh, a long-time secretary of a trade union, of a community organization that's been around for many, many years, and the secretary has been with them for many decades, 
develops a sense of attachment to the files and particularly uh, they will feel as though in giving up the files they are giving up their a portion of their own identity and they'll resist it and I've seen situations where um, the organization itself gave our archives a mandate or gave their staff a mandate these records are be to be transferred to the archives the secretary wouldn't give them up Secretary, well, I need them, you know, I'm still, you know, like this. You'd go in and the secretary would offer you coffee and show you around and do everything except agree to let you box up these records. Well, in one of these cases, I went back at least twice to the executive board. Each time with the secretary sitting there, the executive board said, now, you know, it's understood that these records are going to be transferred to the archives and nothing happened. And they wouldn't, the secretary wouldn't transfer. It became perfectly clear to me that the board was, because the secretary was by far the person with the longest service in the organization, the board was not going to do anything more than pass a formal resolution to the effect. They were not going to lean on the secretary. And it was just one of those things. And at the time, you know, I left this job, a particular job several years ago, the archives still hadn't gotten the records, despite numerous resolutions to this effect. Um, so that there are times when, um, you know, even the, uh, the greatest show of personal diplomacy and cultivation uh, will simply not overcome the resistance that uh, will come up in a case like this. In some cases, you'll find this kind of personal attachment to the records uh, actually saves them from destruction, saves records from destruction, which has been ordered by higher-ups. There are several instances that I'm aware of in major corporations in this country where, for reasons of basically dealing with fear of lawsuits, um, the corporate leadership has dictated that all categories, certain kinds of categories of records are to be destroyed. In one case, um, which I, I have to admit I do not have a, did not have a direct contact with the people involved in it, in one case, a middle management person who had been in charge of these records for many, many years, instead of destroying them as he'd been ordered to, took them home and stashed them in his garage. His garage was full of these records. Unfortunately, the problem is, even though they would be very, very interesting because they dealt with the um, made with major policy decisions over a period of about 30 years of one of uh, America's largest corporations, um, there's no the corporation has not changed its policy of hostility towards the existence of these records, and there's no way that legally they can be placed any place this person, corporation, wasn't going to make a, a uh, have their security forces make a raid on this man's garage. But uh, nonetheless, there really is, um, there is no legal way of getting them into a repository. The corporation itself does not maintain an archives for obvious reasons. In another case, a major corporation which was badly burned, although, in my opinion, with some good reason, in a uh, lawsuit, uh, regarding product, uh, chemical product liability. Um, the uh, legal staff ordered massive destruction of records, even to the point of um, sending their minions around and going through people's file cabinets when they were on vacation to throw things out. 
what happened in that circumstance was that a there was kind of a guerrilla warfare that went on where employees on a number of levels brought home records and stashed them in their basements, mainly things that they had been working on, projects that they had felt had been significant, and they just didn't like to see all this stuff fed into the shredder. Uh, so that when I was out at this company, well, what happened was the company itself underwent a bit of a shift. This is an interesting point because the main, uh, the major companies in this country that have any kind of a historical or archival program are ones either with a particularly unique history, for example, the Wells Fargo uh, bank company, which has been able to, to make a, a good deal of uh, capital out of its um, um, Western, old-time Western image, or companies which have a long-standing uh, family ownership. Um, for instance, among the major auto companies, the only one with a really well-developed archives is the Ford Motor Company. Um, the personal family interest in major corporations is often a factor which leads to some kind of attention to a historical program. And in this particular company that I'm referring to, um, there was one member of the original founding family that was still on the board and still somewhat active in company affairs. And this person became upset at the wholesale and what he considered to be irrational destruction of records, even though he was as concerned about lawsuits as, the, uh, as his colleagues were. But he began to push for uh, a review of this policy, and it appears now that they have an archive, archival programs being set up, and that I encourage them very strongly to offer an amnesty of sorts to these employees who had squirreled things away, saying, look, if these records reappear, uh, no questions will be asked, nobody will get in any trouble, and they won't be destroyed. Both of those guarantees would have to be in place if the records were going to resurface. So I have uh, some hopes that uh, this will come about. It's certainly not going to make up for the enormous uh, breaks in the record which the large-scale destruction uh, uh, undertook, but a few, a few things may be documented. Actually, there was one, as in any organization, one's ability to cope with this kind of a uh, destructive policy depends on one's status. There was a very well-known, very prominent chemist, research chemist in this particular company, who died about three years ago, who uh, used to defeat the records managers, dash records destroyers, who would come in periodically and want all the records you know, older than a certain date in order to feed them into the shredder. He simply had records stacked everywhere, just heaps of them, where he apparently knew where things were, but there was no visible, you know, indexing system or anything like that. And they would say, you know, we want all of your records prior to, you know, 1979. And he'd say, well, okay, you, uh, you know, they're all there, you find them, uh, that's fine with me. And they'd you know, throw up their hands and leave. But he could get away with that because he was uh, somebody who turned out, you know, millions and millions of dollars worth of uh, patentable um, uh, inventions for the company. Uh, somebody on a uh, lower level, a junior bench chemist or somebody, would not be able to get away with that. Um, it's the savers, basically, who 
if you can classify uh, humanity into the uh, savers and the pitchers or the savers and the dumpers, it's the savers basically that um, the uh, archivists uh, work with. In fact, I can say, I can be very in genuinely enthusiastic by saying to these people when I meet them that you're the kind of person who keeps the archivists in business. Uh, and it's, it's perfectly true, but you still have to deal with a lot of idiosyncrasies. Normally, we want, as a field representative for an archives, or even in my current position where I'm not collecting papers but trying to encourage them to be put someplace, we want to encourage people to save and to then present them somewhere. On the other hand, as I'm sure you're all aware, the savers sometimes go overboard and become a little compulsive about this. Uh, there was a man that I dealt with who lived in Washington, D.C., a former AFL-CIO official who had been around for many, many decades, had been responsible for saving, uh, in fact, he sort of went through the dumpster himself at the time of the AFL-CIO, at the time of the merger of the two groups when a lot of records were being thrown out. He went through the trash barrels in the old uh, CIO headquarters and rescued a lot of stuff and brought it to his house. The only trouble was that this penchant for saving valuable records also extended to saving 50 years worth of third class advertising mail and classifying all of that also. And it, fi <laughs> it finally got to the point where there wasn't any more room in his house and his wife said, you know, I will throw you out if you bring another box of papers in here. So the fellow rented a portion of his next door neighbor's house. <laughs> and I had a very bizarre session with him there where um, he was insistent on our doing an oral history interview with him. He had, he had already conned the previous field representative into doing 12 hours of this and promising to transcribe it all, which, as those of you that have ever worked with oral history, is known an incredible amount of transcription. Um, and then he insisted that I do another one with him. Otherwise, he wasn't, it was clear he wasn't going to cooperate on the papers. So we sat in this room in his neighbor's house, surrounded by these towering piles of papers, shoe boxes, you know, stacks of third-class mail, all sorted and so on. And I did this interview, only it was not an interview, it was a monologue. I turned on the tape recorder and he talked for two hours. And I got in a couple of words here and there. Um, the great drawback, although the archives had actually obtained a number of, uh, well, a fair amount, volume of worthwhile records from him, one of the great drawbacks of working with him was that he wanted to tell you the story of every box as you took it. And my predecessor had spent two days in the house. He wanted to offer me a room in his house so that I could spend a week there while he went over, you know, box by box, folder by folder. And uh, I left it for my, uh, you know, successor to try and work that out. Um, I think eventually they were going to be able to get a significant body of these papers. But every field representative will, will tell you they have some kind of a similar experience, whether it's standing you know, in the attic of an old-time civil rights worker in Alabama in the middle of the summer, uh, having the person you know, go through their papers folder by folder explaining all of it, uh, or uh, somebody in an unheated basement in Chicago in December uh, doing that. 
And um, it, it's, it's a very awkward situation for the field representative because uh, if you are not, uh, if you do not show enthusiasm for this, you may not get the papers. Under other circumstances, in fact, the, the donor actually has something of significance to say about them, but if there were only some other way of doing it other than sort of a guided tour through 50 years of documents uh, while you were while you're in the middle of your trip. Um, <coughs> field representatives also find themselves, um, as I think my comments about these visits indicate, uh, being very service-oriented. Um, the donor has the papers. Uh, they're anxious. Uh, they, they may be anxious uh, for you to take them. They may not be. But you feel under some obligation to go along with them when they suggest uh, various uh, uh, favors of one kind or another. Uh, I recall, for example, spending, in terms of packing up one collection, spending my birthday a number of years ago standing in a musty garage in Boston as part of a two and three day stint packing up uh, a very large collection of papers, uh, which might have been handled in a different way, except that the, um, the uh, owner of them really wanted this done sort of under her eye. Uh, in addition, I've also brought a uh, glass bird from New Haven to Philadelphia to be repaired, uh, which was a suggestion that was made to me rather strongly by uh, the owner of another collection of papers that I was rescuing. One sometimes ends up one sometimes ends up in some genuinely embarrassing situations. Uh, oftentimes, field representatives find themselves uh, trying to salvage papers, not just out of the dumpster, but at some critical point. Um, an organization is moving its headquarters, or a family is moving. Uh, the husband has died, the widow is selling the house, uh, the papers can't stay because they're filling the attic of the basement and she's moving into an apartment. And if the, even if, as in one case, uh, we didn't have room for the papers at the center, but I had to go out and get them because we hadn't found a place yet uh, that was willing to take them. So I made the uh, drive up to New Haven in order to pick these up and found myself in the middle of an extremely unpleasant situation in which several generations of this family were in this house. They were trying to get packed for the move. And as any of you who have moved recently may remember, in fact, even not so recently, the pain is probably still in your mind. Moving is the next most unpleasant experience to a death or possibly a divorce in the family. Everybody in this family was screaming at one another and insulting each other. And every once in a while, you know, somebody would say, don't talk that way. The man from the archives is here. Haven't you, haven't you got any respect? And then, the, you know, the cycle of insults would start over again. I was uh, very, very glad to get that uh, collection packed up and get out of there. Um, but uh, getting along under these circumstances requires not only a fair amount of uh, gregariousness on the part of somebody who wants to be a field representative, but also uh, you know, a willingness to put up with and to get along with a lot of eccentric behavior on the part of, uh, on the part of donors. Uh, 
Uh, it helps also if you have a genuine enthusiasm for the material that you're that you're collecting. It's uh, hard to impress a donor if you <coughs> if you curl your lip on seeing uh, what it is that they have. Although one of the problems that you always have to be prepared for is a gross exaggeration one way or the other in the description of what the potential donor has. I have sometimes it's for the better in a way I have gone out to uh, uh, places with uh, visit donors with a sedan or some once even with a compact car expecting a box or two of material from their description and found an entire basement full I would have needed a truck in order to move it uh, on the other hand uh, there have been times when my hopes have been raised um, by uh, a description of um, you know file cabinets full of important letters uh, detailing research or you know important trade union activities and so on and one arrives and finds uh, you know a few folders and several boxes of clippings uh, or <coughs> congratu or this is particularly true in the case of officials of one stripe or another uh, boxes of congratulatory letters on their retirement and uh, you know other things of this sort that understandably they're very proud of but uh, which the archives is not really particularly interested in <coughs> in fact occasionally uh, the field archivist finds themselves in just the opposite position rather than trying to sell the donor and giving the material you find yourself desperately trying to backtrack to convince them that they really ought to keep it uh, this this happens it's not so hard I hate to be sound callous about this is not so hard if you have been misled by somebody with no connections you know in terms of, and no influence in the network in which your archives operates it's not so hard to say to them look you know there's been a mistake and uh, you know this material really is not that useful what's hard is when the person who wants to give you you know boxes of honorary plaques that they have been awarded by the Kiwanis and so on happens to be somebody who has a lot of friends in the you know among the incumbent officers of the organizations that are giving you money and uh, news of rude treatment or what is believed to be rude treatment which may simply be saying you know there was a misunderstanding travels very fast so you find yourself in the position of using every conceivable you know line to convince this person in a tactful way that they really want to keep the papers themselves and I can remember telling uh, one person who presented me with a box of Kiwanis plaques and other things like this desperately trying to find out well wouldn't your grandnephew really be proud to put these up in their wall <laughs> searching for some relative unfortunately the person apparently didn't have much in the way of a, of a extended family which I think you know sadly enough was one of the reasons why they were anxious to give this material to the archives was precisely because they didn't have a family and um, in the end the archive bowed to the inevitably archives had enough room at that time so I took the box of plaques um, more and more places now are uh, facing a real shortage of space and are having to uh, be more hard-nosed about this kind of a uh, this kind of a situation um, but 
these aspects of personal diplomacy become very, very important in dealing with people, particularly when uh, your archives is involved, is, is uh, being sponsored by certain organizations, you know, or has a particular focus, which means that it has spent a lot of effort to put roots into a particular community, either a geographical community right around it or an occupational or professional community of some sort. Um, the networks, the personal networks of friends, of people who are active in organizations, of people who hold office, are extremely important to your archival program in terms of bringing in material. And you have to be acutely aware of the rivalries and the uh, competitiveness that may and usually does exist within what I would say you call your own archival constituency, uh, the, the, the group from whom you're trying to collect papers. <coughs> um, for example, I can say that um, within the um, operation of the Center for History of Chemistry, that there is a certain defensiveness on the part of the chemical engineers professionally vis-a-vis -vis the chemists that has to be taken into account. The chemical engineers work, first of all, professionally by and large, tends to be more anonymous than the chemists work. Uh, secondly, historically, the chemical engineers broke away from the American Chemical Society uh, shortly after the turn of the century because they felt there was not enough attention being paid within the American Chemical Society uh, to their concerns. And there is a something of a feeling on their part that uh, all of the glory goes to the chemists, particularly the academic chemists. W among chemists, there is in fact a, a, a bit of a division and a status concern between academic chemists and industrial chemists with industrial chemists feeling that academic chemists have, um, you know, uh, more status and view themselves or have sort of an elitist and sometimes a, a uh, somewhat nose-in-the-air attitude. And this is fueled, I will say, this is fueled by such incidences as, incidents as uh, a couple of years ago, one rather brash, older but brash candidate for the presidency of the American Chemical Society attempted to garner support for uh, himself by circulating a letter referring to his opponent as a mediocre industrial chemist who had never accomplished very much, which was foolish to do anything like this. Uh, you know, even if he felt that way, because the letter got out, and immediately all of the industrial chemists voted as a block for his opponent, um, and uh, the person was elected. Um, but there, but in any constituency that an archives is attempting to cultivate, or anybody who's interested in historical records preservation, you have to be very, very sensitive to the rivalries, the status concerns, the history, if you will, the history of the organizations um, that compose your constituency and the, the kinds of feelings that are generated in this community. Some of the, some of the archivists who have the hardest time um, in their programs are people, for example, who work in documenting ethnic 
communities because of the often intense personal rivalries and organizational rivalries among different fraternal organizations, different ethnic um, um, uh, community groups, and so on. Um, and I've known particularly one historian archivist who almost had a nervous breakdown trying to coordinate a program that was largely based on volunteers from you know, a variety of uh, a variety of ethnic groups. They they had a terrible time bringing these people together uh, in order to in order to uh, work cooperatively. So the personal diplomacy that's needed in this kind of work inevitably ends up becoming part and parcel of a larger institutional strategy. The individual field archivist um, is not likely to be successful if they can't deal sensitively and effectively with people, with donors. However, they're not likely, even at their most diplomatic, if the program that they're working in is not oriented effectively towards the constituency um, from whom they're seeking manuscript and archival materials, they're likely to have uh, a good deal of difficulty also. And this is where the whole question of the orientation of the institution plays a role. Not only does an archival institution or a department that is collecting manuscript materials, if they're doing social, economic, intellectual history and so on, need to have a clear focus of what they're collecting, preferably in an area that somebody else, where they're not competing head-on with somebody else, but hopefully in an area where they're, they're doing something that hasn't been done before. Uh, not only in order do they need a focus in order to avoid dissipating their energy, since there is so much material out there that if you go off in all directions, uh, you're simply not going to be successful. You also need to pay, I must be uh, frank about this, you need to pay attention in your program to cultivating not just an interesting area, but in planning a collecting program, an area that has some prospect of generating some kind of financial support. Uh, for example, in labor history, a program that, collecting program that will hopefully lead to generating financial support from trade unions. In program in collecting scientific materials that will generate financial support from the professional scientific organizations in that area. Uh, the American Institute of Physics Center for History of Chemistry, uh, Center for History of Physics has done this. The Center for History of Chemistry is uh, the, the director achieved the, um, actually for the first, it was the first time that this cooperation had existed for many, many decades. The director started off by getting the center launched with the support of the American Chemical Society and the University of Pennsylvania on a matching basis. And then he was able to bring in, as a third sponsor, the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. And it was the first time in many, many years that the ACS and the AICHE had cooperated uh, on, uh, on almost anything. Uh, but they are cooperating and supporting the center now. Uh, there have been, of course, abortive attempts at you know, playing this game of trying to stimulate support. One archives that I know 
associated with a state university attempted to garner support, I'm not sure quite what they were hoping was going to come out of this, by collecting the papers of state legislators with a particular certain kind of a background that they hoped would generate support within the legislature. What they got was a lot of nearly worthless collections and not much additional support. So eventually they gave up uh, on this particular effort. There have been some misguided <coughs> efforts at uh, emphasizing certain types of collections uh, in the hopes of uh, raising money, of which nothing has come. But it is something that has to be thought of. If one is, I mean, not that, not that street people are likely to have, you know, manuscript materials, but if one wants to document the society of street people who have not much in the way of resources, and if you're going to do a major effort on this, you better find somebody who has money, who's interested in this for whatever reason, who's willing to support the program, because otherwise what you're likely to end up with, if you're, if you're collecting in some area where there is no donor support for all practical purposes, you're likely to end up with even if you're successful in gathering the material, with the material that you don't have the money to process or to make available or to do anything with, uh, besides simply warehousing. And uh, that can be a, you know, any kind of collecting program that ends up simply warehousing material with no thought to how they're going to uh, process it and make it available uh, is uh, in, in some trouble and I'm not sure is uh, doing the right thing. One of the most crucial aspects in the larger sense that any collecting program um, has to keep in mind to back up the nitty-gritty work of the field representative is um, education and public relations, uh, if you will. Uh, putting out a newsletter, uh, speaking in front of whatever organizational avenues uh, exist in your constituency about your program, sending out um, lots of letters, including, I might add, even such what might be considered sort of gimmicky things as sending out uh, Christmas cards, uh, anything to keep an awareness of your archives and your collecting program, or not even necessarily. I mean, the Center for History of Chemistry sends out, has started sending out Christmas cards. We're not collecting things, but we want people to be aware in every possible way that we exist so that if they th get a question as to what ought to be done with some historical records they have, they will at least give us a call uh, and say, uh, you know, what advice can you give us uh, about what we're going to do with these things. Um, educational work, outreach work, uh, whether you call it uh, outreach or public relations or whatever, uh, I'm convinced is in collecting this type of material, manuscript material out in the community, um, is essential. Uh, it becomes almost part and parcel of kind of a popular history education. I mean, obviously there is a difference between these two things, but um, when I would, uh, when I was at the Labor History Archives, and for that matter with some talks that I've given and other staff members have given from time to time at the Center for History of Chemistry, uh, we will go to the constituent organizations, whether they're local labor unions or the um, read, you know, particularly heavy, nothing, certainly in no way would I describe these as scholarly talks, but they do sensitize 
the people there to the existence of a history, to the significance of a history, and to the fact that the history can't be adequately documented unless they personally take some interest in preserving the documentation. And at the most minimal level, uh, to stop to think before uh, they send Schedule A team of staff members uh, to go into the basement and dump the material uh, to give somebody a call first and give them a little, give them a little advance warning. That way, uh, when the field representative is, is out there, you know, in, at least they've been able to get the records, uh, they're out there loading them onto a truck. Uh, I will say that uh, you know, the, you have to keep a certain perspective on it, this is meaningful work uh, when you're in a situation that I've been sometimes where I, I've literally had to load thousands of pounds of records onto a rented truck. Um, this was when I was at Wayne State. Uh, I was up in uh, Hartford and uh, traveled down the East Coast, loaded up several thousands of pounds of records onto a truck and drove it back to Detroit. Unfortunately, the truck started to break down on the way. Um, I read the booklet, which assured me that uh, the rental company would take care of all this. And they said, oh, absolutely. You know, bring the truck in. We'll give you a new one. The only thing is you have to unload it first and, you know, put it all onto the, onto the, the working truck. So uh, at that point, I said, no, thanks. But I... I think if I remember, this was the instance where I had to put in a, a quart of transmission fluid every hundred miles um, in order to make it back to Detroit. Uh, and it's at moments like that that one has to think of the big picture in order to keep from being overwhelmed with despair. Um, at any rate, I, I will say that um, um, since I've moved into uh, a somewhat, somewhat more rarefied administrative position at the center, although I still, you know, get out and deal with uh, individual donors from time to time, uh, I wouldn't, uh, if somebody offered me enough money, I wouldn't turn down a, a purely desk job but uh, on that grounds alone, but uh, working out in the field, working with people, and uh, facing even what the sometimes bizarre situations uh, is, in my opinion, pretty interesting. And it's one of the things that uh, has made moving from uh, teaching into uh, archival work uh, nevertheless a very interesting career. And uh, it's certainly something that I, that I haven't regretted and that I think that uh, people in-house um, in, uh, in in archives and manuscript centers, um, if you ever have the opportunity to get out and do some field work to work with uh, donors, and uh, particularly if you're, you know, feeling uh, energetic on the morning that you set out in doing this, uh, I think you'd find it uh, interesting work. Uh, that's about all I have to say on this subject uh, at this point, but I'd be happy to either answer any questions or if some of you out there have had uh, experiences that you'd like to relate in a similar vein, I think we'd all be interested in hearing them.